Today on CityCast Salt Lake, our city's battle for clean air feels like recent memory. But is it? I asked climate scientist Logan Mitchell with Utah Clean Energy because he just finished a long study of the history of air quality in Utah, and the results might surprise you. It's Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Logan, welcome back to CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've been working on this research project about the history of air quality, not just in our city, right? Like in Utah, in the whole state. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you sort of like the most basic question to start, which is what exactly like is air quality and how is it measured? So air quality is, you know, broadly defined, just something that's in our air that causes health impacts. We care about air quality because of the impacts on health and also to the environment. But the biggest concern is the the health impacts on us. So air quality, there's a lot of different things that can contribute to poor air quality. The things, the two things that we're most concerned about today are PM 2.5, which is the fine particulate matter. Okay. The other uh, air pollutant that we're really concerned about today is ozone. Okay. So can you actually define ozone for me? Because I do feel like it's one of those kind of buzzwords that we all throw around. And we, for me personally, like I don't fully understand because I have, we refer to the ozone, like it's a layer of our sort of in our, in our sphere of the earth, but it sounds like you're describing ozone as, as a particle. Yeah. So ozone is actually gas. There's ozone near the surface where we live. And that ozone is, is bad because you breathe it in and it causes health impacts. There is also ozone very high up in the atmosphere, like uh, several miles up in the atmosphere. And that ozone is really good okay. uh, because that ozone blocks UV radiation from the sun that gives us uh, skin cancer and sunburns and things like that. And so, so we say about ozone, it's, it's good up high, bad down low. I love that. A lot of times the narrative in Salt Lake around air quality is that it's worst in, in the winter. Like, you know, if you move to Salt Lake, your second week here, you can probably define inversion. But what I'm hearing then is that we should also be really concerned about air quality in the summer, even if maybe when I look out my window, I don't see it hanging over the city. Yeah. And it's crazy because ozone is actually an invisible gas. And so you can have really bad air quality in the summertime. And it can look like a beautiful, perfectly clear blue day. I'm curious when we started talking about air quality in this city, like when did air quality become a commonly discussed public health issue in Salt Lake? So I, I want to turn that question around to you. What do you think? Okay, well, so <laughs> I, I guess... What's your, what's your, what's your I guess? I would say like one thing I know about Salt Lake is that our one of the reason our reasons our downtown streets are so large is that they were designed for cars. And so I think we've been a city built around the automobile and you really can feel that. So I would guess, I'm going to guess based on how much Mad Men I've watched, I'm going to guess that we started talking about air quality as a public health issue around the same time we started talking about smoking as a public health issue. So I'm going to say like the seventies, how'd I do? (laughs) Well, it was a little okay. earlier than that. 
you know, we, we've probably had air quality issues in the Salt Lake Valley ever since humans have, have settled here. Um, and, but really it started to get documented um, as the pioneers were arriving. Oh. Some of the earliest conversations were really about um, indoor air quality. Actually, there's this great quote from Brigham Young. Um, he gave as part of one of his you know, remarks that he gave, uh, he says, what constitutes health, wealth, joy, and peace? In the first place, good, pure air is the greatest sustainer of life. And he was talking about the importance of good indoor air quality and making sure you had a well-ventilated uh, chimney so that you know the smoke didn't build up in your house and kill you while you're trying to sleep at night. But really, the outdoor air quality, it was really around the 1880s that people started to get really concerned. And... Um, there's editorials in the desert evening news, uh, from 1881 that talks about, you know, Hey, as this air quality is, is getting worse, you know, we're going to have to start thinking about some regulations, uh, to address, um, you know, what they called the public health nuisance. And the very first ordinance that was passed that I've been able to find, uh, in Salt Lake was passed in 1891. Which is interesting to me because that is actually five years before Utah became a state. So literally, Utah has had air quality regulations on the books for the entire history of our state. I mean, if that's the case, then why is it so terrible? <laughs> yeah, it really, you know, in some ways it gives me a lot of grace, you know, understanding the, the, the full scope and the, the, how long this has been an issue in Salt Lake. In some ways, this is a really hard problem to solve. Actually, in 1919, there was a major research study that was conducted in Salt Lake. Wow. So during this air quality study that they were doing, one of the things that, that really blew me away is they, had, they did make some measurements that you can actually you know, put into today's numbers. The amount of particulates in the air were just, were just like the air was crunchy. I'm sorry. That's a really disturbing sentence. The air was crunchy? <laughs> When was, the, can you place us again? When was the air crunchy? Yeah. So this is 1919. They made soot fall measurements. Basically, they just put a jar out, you know, jars out around the city for a month or two and then you know, collected them and brought them back to lab and they, they measured and, you know, kind of just uh, west of downtown and kind of the railroad industrial part of the city, they were measuring a thousand tons per square mile per year in terms of the amount of dust fall, the, the, the junk that fell out of the air. Wow. A thousand tons. <laughs> oh my God. And so then, okay. so then what they would do is they took the jar and they dumped it on a sheet of paper and they burnt it. They burnt, uh, or, they, or they tried to combust all of the, the material and they weighed it again. So what they're trying to get at is how much energy are we wasting here? Um, how much are we just losing? And what they found is, is about half of it was combustible. And so in addition to the air quality challenges and health impacts, they're also thinking about this from a perspective of, hey, we're wasting a ton of energy. I mean, it so parallels the conversation that I feel like we're having today when we talk about like methane leaking out of the ground and like just the inefficiency of how we're producing energy it kind of feels like very little's changed. You went to Basin as one of the leakiest oil and gas production regions possibly in the world. And yeah, this is just wasted fuel, wasted energy. 
it's an indicator that we're not being good stewards of the of the resource that we have in addition to the environmental and health impacts that that's causing whenever posture comes up in conversation we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back did you do it just now I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. To go back to this sort of example of this testing, were there changes implemented? Like, what was the reaction? Did we react quickly? They had um, these people go up in watchtowers, and they would look out over the city, and they would look out at all the chimneys and the factories, and if they saw dense clouds of smoke coming out of uh, a region or, or a factory, they would get on the phone with the, the operator and say, hey, you're putting out too much smoke. You got to shut that down. And if they didn't, then they'd get fined. Huh. So it was the first uh, annual emissions, DECRA emissions check in some way. Yeah, for sure. That same metric underlies the regulations about um, smoking vehicles. And, you know, if you're driving down the road and you see you know, a big truck that's you know, blowing a, a dense cloud of smoke out its tailpipe, that's actually illegal. And um, you can report that to the, you know, the Salt Lake County Department of Health. How has this conversation evolved between you know, the turn of the century and now in terms of, of air quality? It's so fascinating to me because in hindsight, they understood the full scope of the problem they understood a lot of the chemistry. They understood a lot of what we needed to do, but they still thought, hey, we needed to continue to collect more information. Oh, that also just feels like so in step with where we're at today. Where yep, it's like exactly. the legislature is like, well, we're going to launch a study group. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like we know the problem. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's exactly it. In 1966, the powerful mayor, uh, he wrote this editorial about how uh, electric cars are going to be the solution to our, our air quality challenges. And so, oh my gosh. Know, right? And the reason it came out in 1966 was because um, GM had their first prototype uh, electric car that could get almost 100 miles of range and could go like 80 miles an hour. And it's like they had a leap basically in 1966 you know, you're sharing this history that you've studied with me. And I'm like, it's making me feel less optimistic because it's like, okay, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, we were kind of in many ways in the same place. What about this research has given you optimism? Are there, are there positive lessons to be learned? Yeah, there are. You know, it's, it's interesting looking back at the full scope of our history. 
even even back in the in eight, the eighteen nineties, like you know, we we want better air quality. What they didn't have though was you know low or zero emission technologies for for their factories to get around. And over time, um, our technology has gotten better. What makes me really optimistic about today is that for the first time in a hundred plus years, we have zero emission. Uh, technologies for a modern way of life. We can actually realize the, the potential that we've been working on for more than a century. We can heat our homes with heat pumps and heat our water with heat pumps. Um, we can generate our power with, with the sun um, and we can drive our vehicles on that power. So there's just it's just a really exciting time uh, to see this see this progress and the potential and you know i fully expect that our air quality is going to get a lot better in the next couple of decades mm. one of the interesting things um, during the the covid lockdown during that short period our air quality improved really dramatically compared to um, prior years in that that time of year as soon as you turn off emissions or as soon as you turn down emissions our air quality is going to get is going to get better, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, and so it's just like this immediate switch, um, yeah, and so that's that's really exciting. I mean, the expression that you hear a lot is "where there's a will, there's a way," but it does feel like around this issue we have the way, but not the will necessarily. Like I remember we talked to Alex Bayou from Heal Utah about the governor's um, energy plan which, you know, environmentalists are stoked because he's saying the words climate change. But you read through that plan and it's still this this walking this line between, you know, sure, maybe some more charging stations, but also coal is still the backbone of our state. And that feels just so unchanged and I think a little disillusioning. Everyone's trying to find the diamonds here in in this these kinds of conversations and these kinds of plans from our leaders. But I mean, do you think we've got the will, or do you think that's changing? Well, I, I think what is changing is the economics are changing fast, and and it's because these technologies have really been implemented and are being adopted, you know, in many places across the country and across the world. And so, you know, right now I feel like Utah's not really in the driver's seat. We're kind of following along with the trends. I mean, we're in the midst of a global energy economic revolution. This energy transition is going to play out in the next 10 to 20 years. It's like, it's like the industrial revolution shrunk into two decades. And turbo. <laughs> it's going to be on turbo. Um, and that is a massive economic opportunity that we could we will either capitalize on and benefit from or we will miss utah has a ton of potential because partially because of our long history with air quality challenges the the folks in utah are like hey i'm on board we need to improve our air quality let's move forward with this we talked to so many um folks in the activism space on this show and one of the recurring themes is that in Utah, you know, if you want to see a policy change, regardless of what it is, you've got to make an economic case. 
And our governor and our leaders talk a lot about the Utah way being about compassion and our, our pathology. And I'm like, I think the Utah way is make an economic case and you might be able to, you know, clean slate, like all these just sort of like incredible policies that we've seen put forward. They have been based on an economic opportunity. And so it does feel like, you know, that is where we are right now. And if we can successfully make that case, I think that's the thing that gives me the most hope. Really where we're at today is we are facing the very real question of are those jobs innovation going to occur in China or in Germany or in California or in Utah? And that is a straight up business uh, economic opportunity question that we that we are that we really need to be facing. Logan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this dose of climate optimism. I really needed it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. A little news before we go. If it's felt like an unusually windy summer, the Deseret News looked into data from the National Weather Service and confirmed our collective suspicion. We've broken some records for wind this year, both in the speed of gusts and the number of gusts. As it pertains to air quality, wind is both friend and foe. This summer, it's been responsible for pushing out some of the ozone that normally hangs in the valley, and it's pushed some wildfire smoke out of our way as well. That said, wind also aggravates wildfires, and now it's whipping up dust storms off the dry Great Salt Lake bed. On Friday, wind near the Great Salt Lake caved in a partially framed house at a construction site. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye. Bye.